you notice I didn't volunteer to do a podcast during the middle of my down period. I waited until I knew that I was out of it and I could talk about it from a position of looking back and seeing it as, as a down period. Welcome to Queries, Qualms, and Quirks, the weekly podcast that asks published authors to share their successful query letter and discuss their journey from first spark to day of publication. I am your host, Sarah Nicholas. I hope you're enjoying the podcast and the stories authors are sharing with you. If you are, please leave a review on your podcast app or share this episode on social media. If you're interested in supporting the show with a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. Diva Fagan is the author of middle grade fantasy novels, Nightingale, Rival Magic, and more. She lives in Maine with her husband and her dog. When she's not writing, she spends her time reading, playing video games, doing geometry, and drinking copious amounts of tea. Welcome, Diva. Hi, Sarah. Thanks for having me. So we already got one of the answers to the questions in your bio before we even get started. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. You know my secret. I do see <laughs> lots of it. So we're going to start by going all the way back to the beginning. When did you first start getting interested in writing? And how long did it take from then before you started getting serious about pursuing publication? My first memory, I think, of sort of storytelling and becoming a part of my life was uh, when I was just you know, elementary school age. We had relatives that were a long drive away, took us two long car trips to get there. And one thing that my younger brother and I would do to entertain ourselves in these car trips was we'd make these maps of fantasy worlds and then tell stories about them, almost sort of like a cross between storytelling and Mm D&D in the car. And so uh, that was probably the first thing that made me think about storytelling as something that I wanted to do. And then My first story was back in fourth grade. We had a unit in school about mythology and we had to make up our own myths. And I got really into it and made this pseudo-Greek myth about how whales got their baleen. (laughs) I was very proud of it. I still have it. It's, you know, okay for an elementary school, but I'm not going (laughs) to... It's certainly not... uh... That's so funny. One of the first stories I remember writing was also kind of a a make-up-your-own-myth lesson in school. Yeah. (laughs) Do you remember what it was? I don't remember. I remember I used Zeus and I think it had to do with Atlantis. Yeah. So there was like a Zeus Atlantis crossover. Yeah. Excellent. (laughs) (laughs) So um, after that, I I actually did start writing a book at 12 and I finished it at 16. It was horrible, terrible. I still have it so I can (laughs) remind myself of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> how bad I was and keep myself humble, but also be pleased with where I've gotten. And uh, it had a lot of inspiration from, I think I'd watched the movie Dune at the time. So it took place in the sand world and there was a dark hero who looked a lot like Sting. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, back in that era. Anyways, I, uh, I though I, I kind of put the writing aside when I went to college and then after that to grad school, I was studying something very different. It was math, a math major and uh, I'm in computer science now. That's my day job. So I was uh, distracted by that. I mean, I read a lot. I did write, but it wasn't something I was focused on as like a career. I, I think I kind of always knew I wanted to do it. I just kind of had internalized the idea I couldn't do it for a living. Mm-hmm. And so I was focused on preparing myself for something else that could support me. Um, But then when I did graduate, got my degree, got my master's, I um, 
went to the workforce and I just still wanted to write. So I started writing in all the time that I could squeeze out of my, you know, my life. This is probably the late nineties, early aughts when I started to really look into publishing seriously. So everything was very different back then. And probably my information from that era of my life is not particularly useful to current people who are hopeful. That was what brought me to to really digging into looking into how I could publish. Can you tell me more about the moment that you realized that you wanted to be a published author? Sure. Uh, I mean, well, maybe not because I don't actually have a specific moment. I was thinking about this, though. I do have one moment that comes to mind. I, I already kind of knew I wanted to be published, but there was this one moment that I think, well, I just, it stays in my mind now. But there was this one moment when I was in the bookstore and I was standing in front of the the face out books and the, the new releases section, and they were all so beautiful and fantastical. And it was the kind of books that I wanted to write. And I just remember this almost physical pain in my chest looking at them of, of yearning and mm. just this. And, and I mean, I think a lot of people who are like us feel that feeling. And mm-hmm. I just knew I wanted to do it. And no matter what else I was doing, even if I couldn't do it for many years, or even if I couldn't support myself doing it, I just knew I had to keep telling stories and that I really wanted to share those stories, not just to write them for myself, but to share them, see them there on the shelf someday. Yeah. So then once you decided you're serious about it, how did you go about learning more about the industry, like how to query, you know, all those different things? I've been through the querying process three times so far, hopefully not anymore, but we'll see. It's it's typical of the publishing industry. I think that, that a lot more authors than you think do go through many different agents. It was different each time because it was at different eras. Mm-hmm. When I first started, there weren't really any, hardly any online resources. So I was using one of those giant old books you could get in the library that was like listing of literary agents and what they represented. And you had to actually, you know, look up the agent and find the information. It was probably out of date because... Yeah, they were all two years out of date when they were printed. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. But, you know, that was what I had to work with. So I tried. So I printed out my actual physical letters and put stamps on them and mailed them. Oh, wow. I even submitted that that was back in the era where you could still submit to some publishers. They didn't take, they took unsolicited queries. So I even did that and I got a personalized rejection from, from one of them that was encouraging. So I I was getting some good feedback, but, but mostly just a lot of rejections, tons and tons of rejections. Mm -hmm. I kept writing um, after that first Dune inspired book in school and I wrote probably about five more books, plus a whole lot of partial books. I joined an online writing workshop. Through that, I found a bunch of critique partners, uh, several of whom I'm still friends with and still work with. I just kept trying to improve each story. I, I did a lot of craft development during that era, I read a lot of craft books, tried to sort of internalize story structure and learn from critiquing other people. I then did NaNoWriMo in 2005, and I wrote this whimsical fairy tale inspired middle grade book that I, I felt like it was the best thing I'd done so far. And in fact, that was the book that got me my first agent, and that was back in 2007. So how many books did you write before that one? Probably about, probably six at that oh, point. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. But was that the first one that you queried? No, I queried a couple of the others. Oh, wow. Cool. Yeah. <laughs> and I just kept writing. <laughs> Nice. Yes, you need determination. All right. So can you talk for us a little bit about from that point until when you got your first book contract? 
And then I know that is actually, that's usually where we stop on the podcast, but I know that's not the end of your story. So we're going to talk about that too. So um, my first agent sold that book and eventually she sold two more of my books. And those became my first three middle grade novels that were published, uh, which came out in 2009, 2010, and 2011. And as you alluded to, I'm going to sort of skim over that because that was a while ago. So that information is not as necessarily as apropos for the current publishing industry. As I said, uh, after that, I uh, came to the part of the traditional hero's journey where things start to get worse and worse and worse. <laughs> and you go into the dark time of the soul and you question everything. So basically, that was for me, 2011 through 2017 was my low point of my hero's journey. So in 2010, my first agent sold my third book that had already sold to a US publisher to a UK publisher, along with a sequel, which I hadn't written yet. And it wasn't part of my US contract. So I was excited. And I spent about a year working on that book, rather than working on something new for my US option, mm -hmm. only to have that UK publisher run into financial troubles. And they basically okay. imploded canceled my contract. I never got an advance. Fortunately, I have a day job that is good. I, I'm lucky to have that. So it wasn't nearly as bad of a impact on me as it would have been if I was trying to support myself with my writing. But it was still uh, just a huge, I think, emotional blow. And I, I didn't even realize it at the time. But I it's kind of it kind of traumatized me. <laughs> writing wise, I felt like guilty, like I had done something wrong. I felt like I had been stupid to get in that situation in the first place. And I was just disheartened. I hadn't felt like my first middle grade books had done as well as I would have liked. Um, and I didn't really have any new middle grade ideas. Things weren't really great with that first agent. So I thought I'd try something new. And I started writing YA fantasy to, to give that a try. I also at that point, uh, well, in May of 2011, I left my first agent, the one who had who had sold those first three books. And so I started my second agent search uh, with a new YA fantasy manuscript. And this time I did have a little bit of an advantage because I had writer friends and my editor uh, in the US who I was was on good terms with, who gave me some references. And it was also a good time for YA fantasy. So I actually ended up with a bunch of different author offers of representation in October of 2011. And I did end up accepting one of those to be my new agent. And she was wonderful. And while I'm not with her now, I think she's still an excellent agent. Uh, the reasons I left wasn't because she was a bad agent in any way. It was just, uh, well, I'll get to that later. <laughs> but unfortunately, over the next few years, in spite of all of her efforts and in spite of me writing four more new books, oh gosh. we could not sell any of them. We had a bunch of close calls uh, with revision requests. Several of them went to acquisitions, but just didn't make it to actual offer. And so that just kept sending me deeper into that pit of despair that had opened up during the, uh, the UK contract being canceled. That was pretty much my low point in um, early 2017. Hopefully, at least it's the lowest point so far. This is publishing, so... <laughs> If nothing else, I expect there to be future low points. But So in 2017, I just realized things weren't working with what I was trying to do. Um, my agent was fantastic. She just wasn't the right person for me and my books. 
So I decided to leave her. That was even harder than leaving my first agent because I had not sold anything in like five years and I felt like a giant loser and I'd published three books and then fallen on my face and no one knew who I was anymore. (laughs) (laughs) So at least that was the story I was telling myself. I mean, Mm -hmm. this isn't actually true because, you know, my third book is actually still in print and I was getting mail from readers and good things had happened with it. But you know how it is. You you have these expectations about once you publish your first book, things are going to be smooth and you're Mm going to just keep getting better and better and better. But instead, I had kind of gotten better and better and then dove down into this pit (laughs) of, of failure. But I still loved stories. I still loved writing. And I'm just so grateful I did have a good day job that still left me enough time to write. I mean, I had to squeeze it out in the mornings and the evenings, but I I made that time and I just kept writing and I wrote a new middle grade fantasy going back to what had worked (laughs) for my first three. And I dove into the slush file once again with just normal old, I think I had a couple references at that point from some of my friends, but I got form rejections for all of them. So, you know, (laughs) a personal reference is not any kind of guarantee of anything. So most of my queries were just going through the same channels as other writers. But it was great because this time around, there was just so much more information. I used Query Tracker and uh, Manuscript Wishlist and other online resources. I refined my query and my opening chapters with um, friends, writer friends. And I didn't do any Twitter pitch type things. I knew they existed, but I just wasn't really into that right at that point. Um, I think it's a great thing that they they exist, but I didn't take advantage of that. So I queried starting in midsummer of 2017 and got lots of projections yet again, but I did get some personal ones. I got some manuscript uh, requests and I did get a couple rejections saying my main character was unlikable, saying that they would have liked the story better if it was told from a different point of view and so on and so forth. But, you know, I, I tried to to hold my ground. I, I knew that I really liked the story the way it was. And finally, I found an agent who agreed and they offered in October of 2017. So really wasn't that long, even though it felt long. Yeah. But I, I signed with them and that was that. <laughs> and then you've sold books with that agent. Yes. <laughs> I love that you're sharing the story because a lot of writers tend to think once they get their agent, they're golden. Once they get that first publishing contract, you know, it's just going to continue on like that. And even the references, a lot of people think, oh, if they have references that they're, you know, they're in and your story demonstrates that (laughs) none of that is necessarily true. You can rely on nothing except (laughs) your own tenacity and your writing. Yes. No, it would be nice if there was a magic, uh, a magic button or a magic word that you could say and then everything would be great after that yeah i think you're going to read your 2017 query letter for us right correct yes all right dear agent i am a previously published author seeking representation for my new middle grade fantasy adventure rival magic complete at sixty thousand words antonia may not be the most powerful wizard the world has ever seen but she's worked hard to win her place as apprentice unfortunately hard work isn't always enough not after the infuriatingly blunt scullery maid, Mop, reveals herself to be a magical prodigy. 
Now Antonia must compete with this uncouth upstart to fulfill her dreams and win their master's letter of recommendation to the renowned Scola Magica. And she's not above using a nose enlargement charm to do so. When their master is accused of treason and hauled off to prison, Antonia and Mop are forced to go on the run together. To prove their master's innocence and their own, the rivals must become allies and regain a potent, long-lost magical artifact. But as their island province teeters on the brink of rebellion, others, too, seek to claim that power by any means necessary. Together, Antonia and Mop face fierce stone lions, ancient spells, ventral mermaids, voice-stealing forests, and one insatiable magical goat. But their greatest challenge lies ahead. After a crushing betrayal, Antonia must decide whether to sacrifice her dreams to save her newfound friend or to ensure they remain rivals forever. And with a bloody revolution looming, Antonia's choice will shape the future of her homeland. My first two books are humorous middle-grade fantasies, Fortune's Folly, The Magical Misadventures of Prunella Bogthistle, and Circus Galacticus. Thank you for your time and consideration. Awesome. That's a, a great example of voice in a query letter. <laughs> I was trying. Yeah. <laughs> it took me a while to get get it. So we kind of already talked about your experience since signing your first book contract, but how has your experience been, you know, since since the new book contract? Also, were there any surprises at any point that you would like to let listeners know about? So yeah, um, my new agent, my third agent, uh, suggested that we submit Rival Magic to my original editor, who is still receptive to my work, even though I'd been sort of out of her area for a while. So we actually gave her an exclusive, and she ended up acquiring it jointly with a junior editor of hers, who eventually got promoted, uh, rightfully so, because she's brilliant, and took over my future books. So uh, I worked with my original editor on my first four books, and then with her junior uh, editor on that one and then from then on. So that was actually one of the surprises was not to go on wide submission. But at this point, I was just kind of desperate to <laughs> to get back in there. And it seemed like I, I loved that editor a lot. And I, I knew that she would do well with, you know, I'd be in good hands if I worked with her again. So I was happy to do that and happy with that outcome. I was actually, honestly, happy that they they were interested in working with me again. So since then, I have sold two more books to my current editor, one that just came out in April of 2021, and one that is going to be coming out next spring, and hopefully more to continue. All right, it is time for our quick round. I call it author DNA. I know you are a science minded person, so it has nothing to do with DNA at all. But it's just classifications that we use when we talk about writers. So the first question is, are you a panther or a plotter? I am a plotter. Do you tend to be an overwriter or an underwriter? I tend to be an underwriter. I, I do add a lot in, um, in revision. Do you prefer to write in the morning or at night? I prefer to write in the morning. I'm a morning person. I wish I did. <laughs> <laughs> I actually wish I could write at night. I always fall asleep when I try to write at night. But. Mm. When you start with a new story, do you usually start with character or plot or concept or something else? It's usually uh, some sort of halfway between plot and concept. For example, with Rival Magic, the one that I wrote, the query read the query for, it was two rival apprentices, one who is talented with the book learning and one that has native ability. But I, that was that was all there was to go on. You spoiled this one in your bio, but do you prefer <laughs> coffee or tea? I prefer tea, but I'm not, I, I kind of wish I was more of a tea connoisseur than I am. I just like 
like two kinds of tea and that's it. I just like them a lot. <laughs> so my love for tea is deep, but not broad. <laughs> when you're writing, do you prefer silence or some kind of sound? I honestly can do either. I, I do make myself soundtracks for some for inspiration. And I, I use those when I'm brainstorming a lot. But sometimes I'll get into the zone and I'll forget to turn on my music and it'll just I won't notice. When it comes to writing the first draft, are you more of a get it down kind of person or a get it right kind of person? I would say I'm more towards get it right. I try not to edit too much as I'm going, but I will reread what I'd written the day before often and tweak it. But what I do often do is, you know, I will stop if I feel like I'm going in the wrong direction and I will revamp my outline and redirect my direction. I will go back and fix things. I, I can't go forward if I know there's something mm -hmm. really wrong. I can go forward if I know there might be something wrong and I don't know how to fix it. But if I know how to <laughs> fix it, I need to go back and fix it. What tools or software do you use to draft? I just use Microsoft Word. Do you prefer drafting or revising more? I like whichever one I'm not doing. <laughs> Probably a common <laughs> answer. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I, I really love both of them. But you know, different parts of both of them. I love the part of drafting where I get to a scene that I've outlined and I know what's going to happen, but I've left something sort of loose and open, some element that I haven't figured out. And as I'm drafting it, I suddenly get the idea for what that element is going to be. And it's like perfect. I mean, those moments of discovery and drafting are just so energizing. Mm -hmm. And likewise, in revising, I love when I'm I hate when I have a problem and I know I need to fix it, but I don't know how to fix it. And I just bang my head against the wall for a long time. So that's the bad part of revising. But once I have the idea and I figure out how to fix it, implementing those changes is just, it's just so joyful to see the book shaping into the thing you want it to be. You know, it's never perfect, but seeing it become more and more like the vision in your head. A lot of people have said, basically, I like the fun part of drafting and I like the fun part of revising. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm in good company then. That's, that's, that's a good answer. Do you write in sequential order or do you hop around? I write in sequential order. I have no idea how people's brains can handle hopping around. I, I, I'm very in awe of anyone who can write out of order. And are you an extrovert or an introvert? I am an introvert. So the show is called Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. We talked about your query. Now we're going to get into that second cue. What were some of the worries that you had on your journey and were they realized or did you overcome them? How did that shake out? Oh, uh, yeah. I, I had so many. <laughs> I've already basically talked about, about some of them, which did come to pass. You know, I was afraid that I wouldn't be able to sell another book. And indeed, I did not sell another book for many years. And uh, that was pretty painful. But you notice I didn't volunteer to do a podcast during the middle of my down period. I waited until I knew that I was out of it and I could talk about it from a position of looking back and seeing it as as a down period. It was it was definitely really hard when I was in the middle of it. I guess um, imposter syndrome, that feeling that if you're not actively engaged and have something under contract, that you're not a real writer. Mm. And looking at other people, I, I know that some of your other guests have talked about the keep your eyes on your own page. And, and that's definitely so important because it's just so different for everyone. And in terms of overcoming those things, uh, one of the things is, I'm not going to say I'm grateful for that hiatus, but one thing it did, 
I think teach me is to learn to advocate for myself and to be really clear about what I need from my publisher, from my agent, from myself, from my family, you know, just to, to value my own work more and not to sell myself short. And so I, I would love all writers to be doing that more, especially if you're not a straight white cis man. And I think really need to learn to advocate for ourselves mm-hmm. <laughs> and to value ourselves and to find the, the joy in writing. That That's really the, the ultimate thing that helps me get through any woe that I experience in writing is just reminding myself how joyful it is to me to write when it's going well. <laughs> I remember I was at a dinner with some authors after an event and Danielle Clayton was there and she's a big proponent of advocating for yourself. And about 20 minutes of the dinner, it was just her like convincing all the other authors to talk to the agent about a specific thing or, you know, advocate for themselves in some way. And ever since that, I, I sometimes think about that conversation whenever I know that I need to advocate for myself. So yeah, yeah, that's really important. Yeah. Do you have any writing quirks? Is there anything about your writing process that you think is kind of different or interesting or unique? I don't know how quirky it is, but even though I outline and I have a pretty good idea where I'm going, I will always hit a point, sometimes several, where I have to go back and rewrite the first chunk of the book, usually. One thing that I may have not expected it to be this way, but for me, I actually find it easier to do a massive rewrite and just throw it out and give myself permission to redo something, even if I was almost there and it might have worked. It's just so much easier for me to start over with a blank page and start fresh with a new first chapter or something like that, rather than trying to just tweak it and make smaller changes. I don't know why, but I avoid rewriting things at all costs. <laughs> Maybe I shouldn't. Though. Well, no, you know, but that's the thing. Every writer is different. So for me, that's just the way my brain works. I get too attached to the way it was before. And so I have to kind of be like, even if I sometimes rewrite it very similar to how it was. So when you were in the lowest parts of your journey in that dark night of the soul that we talked about, <laughs> what kept you going? And why did you stick to it? So definitely one of the biggest things that get me going were my fellow writers. I had thankfully made some good writer friends during uh, my debut and uh, follow-up books and I stayed in touch with them and and they were so good about reminding me that I was still a writer that just because I didn't have a contract and you know just because my books weren't you know bestsellers or so on and so forth that that I was still valued and that they wanted to see more of my writing so definitely get a good group of people who support you is, is, is so important, at mm-hmm. least it was for me. And one of the questions I just asked myself that always sort of helped me kick myself out of the worst feelings was I'd say, well, if I could magically change myself, so I was, you know, Rick Riordan, and I had written his books, or, you know, some other famous author, would I do that? Like, would I exchange my books for this other person's books to have their career? And the answer was always no, I loved my books. I wanted to write my books. And this was the path I was on writing those books, then that was the path I was on. And I embraced. So I embraced my own books, basically, in my own stories. That's really nice. So what are some of the biggest mistakes you made along the way that you want to share with listeners so they don't make the same ones? (laughs) (laughs) So I already kind of touched on on many of my mistakes. 
hindsight, you know, you know, who knows if things would have been different, but I, I do kind of feel like it was a mistake for me to, to not try harder to keep writing middle grade after I'd sold my first three middle grade books. And instead I kept trying to, I think I was sort of disappointed with not feeling like I'd done well enough with middle grade. So I started trying to write YA fantasy instead. And I still love YA fantasy. I would love to be able to publish it. I still write it for fun books and stuff. But, you know, there is a certain thing where you establish yourself with a certain brand. And I, um, I feel like I was successful when I went back to that brand that had worked. And, and I love it. So I'm not, I'm not saying you shouldn't write, that you should write books you don't want to write. But I think I didn't have as clear a sense of what books of mine were the strongest books that I could put out there at that time. I, I don't know how useful that is to the listeners here, but I guess just to to think about your choices. But then again, you know, I made a choice and maybe maybe it worked out for the best. I mean, I'm I'm where I am now and I'm happy with the books I'm selling now. So mm. that's fine. The other thing I also kind of alluded to is just not advocating for myself and not making it clear to agents I'd worked with in the past about what I needed. Like I'm a very neurotic person and I get really anxious when uh, I send somebody a message asking a question and I don't get a response. Or if I send my agent something and I don't know when to expect their feedback, I I don't mind if it's going to be a while. I just want to know this is the day that if I haven't sent you anything that you can check in with me. Mm -hmm. And so just making it very clear, that kind of stuff. And so it wasn't until my, my most recent agent that I really understood what I needed in terms of communication to not drive myself (laughs) over the edge with, uh, (laughs) with neurotic concern. I mean, I'm still, I still worry. I mean, there's no way to turn that off, but Mm -hmm. there are things you can do to manage your own stressors that I didn't really realize I could ask for. And now I do. So. I'm really glad you mentioned that because I think a lot of newer writers who are new to having an agent, they don't realize that they can ask for those things. And they, yeah, we put agents sometimes on a bit of a pedestal and we think that they're all powerful and one, they're not. And two, they're, they want to work with you. They want to be your business partner. And so they want to make it, you know, a successful partnership for both of you. And so you can ask for the things that you need for sure. Exactly. Exactly. All right. Can you share with listeners one of the most important lessons that you learned on your journey to publication? So I'll go back to craft with this one because I feel like I haven't talked about craft enough and I love craft. So (laughs) this is peculiar to my kind of writing. So it will apply perhaps more to listeners who are like me, a plot focused person who comes up with a premise or a plot first. I found that there was a big change in the success of my stories when I realized that I was letting my plot dominate, not not the end result, but I in my mind was so fixated on following my plot that I wasn't letting my characters have the right agents, the degree of agency that they needed to have it be a successful story. And so Mm. that was a real, I think, turning point where I realized what was, and I still struggle with it. I'm not perfect, obviously, but recognizing that even if I had an outline that said, you know, the characters go to the castle and kill the dragon. And then I got there and I made my characters kill the dragon, but the characters didn't want to kill the dragon, but it was in my outline. So I made them kill the dragon and really they wanted to have tea with the dragon or, you know, work (laughs) with the dragon. And 
So I had to be willing to realize that my vision of the book was not so unquestionable that I should override what was actually organic agency for the characters and and what they would really do. They were not my puppets to dance around on strings. That's a great tip. I remember when I started writing and getting feedback from people, the question that would be asked a lot is, well, why did the character decide to do this? Exactly. And my answer was because that's what's (laughs) supposed to happen in the story. But of course, that's not the right answer, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I still have to stop myself from doing that. It's like my feedback from my, you know, beta readers and the and and CPs is always like, this character needs more agency. Why are they doing this? What's their reason? Yeah. <laughs> I call this the acknowledgements portion of the podcast. This is not a business that most of us succeed in completely on our own. Who are some of the people who helped you along the way and how? Back when I first debuted in 2009, I had a debut group which I think some of your other guests have talked about. And in that era, there were smaller, so it was it was a little more cozy. <laughs> and uh, I just really appreciated having those people to share that time with. So I'm still friends with a lot of those people, and, and they uh, remain very trusted critique partners and, and beta readers for me. Um, two of them that I'm still work with a lot of the time are uh, RJ Anderson, who writes um, YA fantasy about fairies. It's very cute. And Megan Crew, who had um, a post-apocalyptic trilogy, and she now does a lot of stuff under a pen name, but the secret. <laughs> and then I've also met some really wonderful fellow middle grade authors. So it's great to have them to talk to. Last year, during the pandemic, uh, it was very stressful because I was bringing out this first book in a long time. So I had the support of Jen Reese, who wrote A Game of Fox and Squirrel, and Anne Nesbitt, who has uh, a number of historical and fantastical middle grades. And they both had books coming out the same month as I did. So that was really helpful. We we commiserated over everything being closed down. <laughs> <laughs> I have another longtime CP that has just been my rock in terms of getting me through my plot difficulties, because she and I think a lot alike in terms of plot. Uh, Melissa Caruso, who writes adult fantasy. Very, very great adult fantasy. So you should check out her new book that's coming out later this summer. Those are my writer buddies and many more. I mean, I, I <laughs> feel bad just mentioning a few because there's just no, such a great fine. community it's, out you there. You know, it's not an Oscar speech. No one's going to yes. be judging you. <laughs> it's funny that you mentioned it because it just occurred to me, this is a really weird time to be doing this podcast. Just by the nature of it, I'm mainly talking to people who have debuted recently. And so a lot of them have debuted during the pandemic, (laughs) which is an interesting experience that's going to be not much like debuts in the past and probably debuts in the future. Yeah, I feel like things will probably just be very different going forward. Mm -hmm. Even once things change, I think the impact of this era is going to be. Can you tell us about your latest release? Oh, sure. My latest release is called Nightingale, and it is another middle grade fantasy that came out on April 20th. And it is about a young thief named Lark who is struggling to survive in a sort of downtrodden existence where the city she lives in has these magical factories that people have to go work in if they don't have any other way to support themselves. But the magical factories 
damage the health of the people who work in them and they start to fade away and become ghosts. And so she is searching for a way out of this life and decides to use some of her abilities as a thief to pilfer some items from the Royal Museum. But in the process of that theft, she accidentally steals a magic sword that it chooses her to become the next hero of the realm, which is like the last thing she wants because she does not have time for heroes or heroism. But she has to, and she discovers maybe a little bit about what it means to be a hero and Mm. how heroism is about more than just what she does. She has to uh, work with some of her friends and figure out not just how to defeat the giant robot that's terrorizing her uh, world, but also to figure out what to do about these horrible factories that are uh, making people sick. Interesting. So it's like a heist fantasy with some labor themes. <laughs> yeah, I think my favorite uh, trade review said it's something to the effect of it's she ran the Princess of Powers meets the birth of the labor movement. Oh, wow. So. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is fine with me. <laughs> Diva, thank you so much for coming on the show and talking to us about your journey. Thank you so much for having me, Sarah. It's been great to be here. And I really hope that anyone who's listening who is feeling some of that dark night of the soul energy that, that I know so well can at least take some comfort from knowing that some of us have come out the other side and are... are <laughs> are getting to a a different place, a better place. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Queries, Qualms, and Quirks. You can find the text of Diva's Query in the show notes, along with links to find out more about her and her books. If you enjoyed the show, please leave a review on your podcast app, tell your friends, or share this episode on social media. And if you're interested in supporting the show with a couple bucks a month, go to patreon.com slash pubtalklive. And if you're a published author interested in being a guest on the show, please click on the home base link in the description or go to sarahnicholas.com and click on the podcast logo in the sidebar. That is Sarah with an H and Nicholas with no H. Thank you so much for listening and we'll see you next time. If you're enjoying this show, please check out Pub Talk Live. Pub Talk Live is a publishing talk show broadcasting live to YouTube every second and fourth Saturday at 9 p.m. Eastern, but it is also syndicated as a podcast. Agent Chat Live is a spinoff of Pub Talk Live that features casual chats with literary agents with the intention of helping writers get to know the agents a little bit better. Check out both on YouTube or the podcast app of your preference.